going to read from Mark uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called to them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Thanks, Greg. Good morning. He had a plan to start a revolution. He wanted to change the world. So he began by articulating his vision very clearly of what he wanted to see happen in the world. So others would begin to buy into what his vision was. After he began to develop his vision, he incorporated some others into his leadership, some very strong personalities with tremendous gifts and abilities. These were real leader types. He began to develop an organization that was very thorough and exact. And this organization included an education wing, a military wing, to begin to develop a military power. He was an organizational genius. He had a lot of charisma. And so through this charisma, he began to motivate people and he polished his image so people would be devoted to him. Motivated people in a couple of ways in particular. He appealed to their nationalism. He made them feel like they'd been slighted by others. And so that incorporated their pride and and built their sense of nationalistic pride. Then he also motivated people by choosing to have kind of an us and them mentality. Us versus them mentality. a, A sense that These people are the problem, and if we could just deal with them, then everything would go well. So he appealed especially to anti-Semitism and anti-communism. Once the propaganda machine was in place, he finally was ready. He invaded Poland, and we have the beginning of World War II. Who am I speaking of? Adolf Hitler. He truly was a master at creating an earthly kingdom, at starting a revolution that would change the world. Yes, he was evil, but he was brilliant. Today in Mark chapter 1, we see how Jesus begins to establish his kingdom, his plan to start a revolution. (laughs) The people expected him to do what Hitler did. The people expected him to build this organizational empire, to get strong leadership, to build a military wing, 
an education wing, to change the world in the way that the world is easily changed using worldly might and power. That is what the people of Israel expected Jesus to be when He came as Messiah. But as we'll see today and as we continue in our book of Mark, Jesus chose to respond very differently. (laughs) He did not use those kind of techniques to change the world, to start a revolution. He didn't come to conquer through military or political power or force. And I think it's critical for us today, as believers today, to understand how Jesus stepped out to begin to change the world, to establish not a physical kingdom on earth, a worldly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. It's important for us because He calls us to grow the kingdom of God in the same way. We who are citizens of this kingdom of God. It's tempting for believers to use those same worldly forces of organizational strength and political power and motivating people and propaganda. Those things can build big churches, but those things cannot build the kingdom of God. And when the church relies on those things, we get into trouble every time. So how does Jesus start His revolution? How does He establish a kingdom that will last forever, that is continuing to expand even today, 2,000 years later. And where is the Third Reich today? Interesting. And what can we learn for our lives today? That's what we'll be looking at this morning as we look at Mark chapter 1. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You for establishing the kingdom on earth through Your Son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You're the King and You have shown us through this book and through the New Testament how You want Your kingdom established. May we be ready recipients to hear what You as the King are calling us to. And Holy Spirit, may we respond to Your prompting. May we learn to walk in the Spirit in a way that allows us to follow You day by day, minute by minute. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does Jesus start His revolution? (laughs) We saw last week how He was prepared for that. He was anointed with the Spirit. He was given the unconditional love of the Father and out of those began His revolution. Today He begins that. What does He do first? He proclaims the Gospel. He simply proclaims the Gospel. Let's see verse 14 where he says, After John, John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now, why is that significant after John was arrested? That Jesus stepped out and began his kingdom work. Why did he wait till then? Why was that the time he began? Mark makes it clear it was at that point he began to preach. Well, John was the last prophet. Remember, there were many prophets in the Old Testament giving us a word from God, but then we had a a period of some 300 plus years where there was no word from God through the prophets. And then John was the last prophet, the Old Testament style prophet, where God spoke through him and said, I am the one who is preparing the way for who 
is coming. But when John was taken out of the way, that was the end of the old age. And as Jesus begins, it's the beginning of the new age, the age of the kingdom of God being established on earth. John marked the end of the old era, and Jesus is the beginning of the gospel era. Mark wants us to see that contrast. And so where does, where does Jesus go to start his revolution? Now remember, Jerusalem was the place of all the political, military, uh, brain power, all of that. The money, the wealth, all of that was in Jerusalem, in the southern, central, mountainous part of Israel. And where does Jesus go to start his revolution? He says, he went into Galilee. Not in the power circles of Jerusalem, but in the backwards fishing villages of Upper Galilee. Out of the way of the political and religious leaders of the day. Not probably how we would think of trying to establish a revolution. We would want to garner celebrity power, right? We would want to go where the TV stations could monitor everything that goes on. We would want to create a force in society. But no, Jesus goes to the backward villages of upper Galilee. And how does he begin his kingdom? Does he create an organization? Does he call people with great political and military power to join him? No, he simply begins preaching the kingdom. I think we need to understand the power of that. We, we lose that in our digital age. We live in this digital age where we're so reliant on visual imagery that comes through the TV or through our smartphones or through our laptops. And we can have instant information. And if we don't show up at church, it's okay. We can hear it on the Internet, hear a sermon on the Internet, or we can watch a TV preacher, or we can whatever. We don't depend as much on the live proclaiming of the Word. So why listen to the Word being proclaimed? <laughs> well, I think what Jesus is showing us here is that there's, some, there's power in the Word. The Word is a living Word. And His choice to how the kingdom is expanded is it's spoken through incarnation, through living, breathing people. Jesus came as an incarnation of God Himself on earth. And I think we need to understand that God has chosen to expand His kingdom through people who speak the Word. There's nothing special about me or any other preacher or speaker of truth except God chooses to honor His Word when it's proclaimed. Jesus knew the way to start a revolution was to proclaim truth to a corrupt and lost society. Here at Cole Community, the elders a few years ago put together some core ministry principles that we see as foundational to how we do ministry here at Cole. It's on our website. You can pick it up in the back if you want a hard copy. But the very first core ministry principle that we rely on here at Cole to do ministry is the ministry of teaching. Let me read it to you. We are convinced that the submissive response to Scripture is the basis of living as a disciple. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word and uses it to transform us. We emphasize expository teaching, where Scripture is laid open to public view in order to set forth its meaning, to explain what is difficult to understand, and to make appropriate application. God 
in His wisdom chose the speaking of the Word through human, weak, imperfect vessels to be a way in which the kingdom is expanded. And He's modeling it for us even as He begins His ministry of preaching. And what was His message? The kingdom's here. The time's fulfilled. It's now. The word where it's translated in my text and the kingdom of God is at hand means it has drawn near. Essentially what Jesus is saying is the kingdom is in me, Jesus is saying. I have arrived. The Messiah has come. The kingdom has begun. It's in me. And so he says, therefore, repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. What he's saying is, The kingdom is here. I am the kingdom, Jesus says. So will you repent and believe in me? In other words, he's saying we all have a choice to make at that point. What the word does is it gives us that choice and it calls us to turn away from sin, to repent and to turn to believe in him and put our trust in him. That's how we get part of this new movement. For Hitler, if you wanted to be part of, of his organization, you had to join the Nazi party and you had to begin to work actively in support of the Nazi party. If you want to be part of the kingdom of God, it's simply turn from sin and turn to Jesus to believe in him. It's simple. The gospel is simple. And yet, why do so few respond? Maybe because they think it's too simple. It's like Naaman in the Old Testament and Second. Kings chapter 5, he was a a general of the nation of Aram, enemies of Israel. And he'd heard, he had leprosy, and he heard about this Elisha, this prophet who could heal. So he tried to go to him, and Elisha just sent a message, said, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman said, well, forget it, that's dumb. I I thought he was going to come and touch me and do all this dramatic miracle stuff. He wants me to just go wash in the Jordan. We have better rivers than that in Damascus. And his servant wisely said, it's easy. This must be from God. It's that easy. Just do it. He did it and was healed. The gospel washes us clean and it's easy. It's simply belief. And it's something that we can all do if we'll simply repent and believe. What does it mean to repent? I like the way Billy Graham puts it in his book, The Reason for My Hope, Salvation. Because we need to understand repentance. What does it mean? It it means turning away from sin. It means turning to God. He puts it this way. What's the problem, you may ask, if Jesus died on the cross for our sin and God has forgiven us, then everything's fine, right? Well, if we were to take this position, we would be as Adam and Eve, unwilling to admit our disobedience against God. Repentance is this, he defines it as. We must acknowledge before him our transgressions. We must accept responsibility for our sin. Our hearts must truly be repentant for our rebellion against a holy God. We must realize repenting of our sin is our only hope of receiving God's salvation. And then we must turn from a life of sin to a life of truth and walk according to his truth. The Bible tells us clearly that all of us as sinners must repent and turn from our sin. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Repentance is more than just being sorry for our sin. It's a complete turning away 
from our total depravity. I think it's important to hear what Billy Graham says there because in our day and age, we don't like to use the word sin. We like to think, well, yeah, God's forgiven me and we like to talk about God's love, but repentance, when Jesus says repent and believe, he's saying you need to admit you're a mess that you are sinful, that you have a heart that wanders from God. And when you admit that and turn to Him, that's where the cleansing and new life begins. That's where you enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting. He uses words that in the Greek language, where he says repent and believe, they are in the present imperative. I know for most of you that doesn't mean anything. But what it means is it's ongoing. It isn't a one-time deal. Repent once and believe, and that's it. No, because of the form it's in, what it means is it's ongoing. This is a definition of the Christian life. You want to know how we live the Christian life every day? Constant repentance, constant believing. Every time you see that you have a heart that wanders from God, you you simply admit it, you turn away from it, and you turn to Him. And that's the Christian life because we're constantly struggling with our flesh, constantly struggling with our own sinfulness. And so this is the Christian life. Repent and believe. And Jesus calls us to that. So how does Jesus start His revolution? By simply proclaiming the Gospel. He knows the power of the Word, the power of the Gospel to change lives. And He trusts in the power of the Word, and we should too. Many of you probably have already seen the movie Unbroken. How many have seen it, by the way? Yeah, quite a few. Well, I hope you read the book first. (laughs) Because the movie leaves out the most important part, really. What it leaves out, the movie, is that Louis Zamperini, after he was released from, from uh, prison and he went, came to America and he's trying to get his life back together, his life was a mess. He was haunted by nightmares constantly. He turned to alcohol, became an alcoholic, trying to somehow deal with the pain of what he had been through. It was horrible. His wife went to a Billy Graham crusade and committed her life to Christ, finally convinced Louis Zamperini to go to a Billy Graham crusade in 1949. At that crusade, he heard the gospel, the simple gospel that Billy Graham preaches. He gave his life to Christ. At that point, his life changed. Simply hearing the simple gospel that Jesus was preaching, that Billy Graham preached, turned his life around. He gave up alcohol. He stopped having those nightmares. And he ended up giving the rest of his life to serve the kingdom of God. He spoke to many about his newfound faith. And many, many came to Christ as he himself shared the gospel. That's the part that the movie doesn't show. But that's the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel will do if we will trust it and proclaim it. That's what builds the kingdom of God. Secondly, what builds the kingdom of God, verses 16 through 20, is to build a community of Jesus followers. Build a community of Jesus followers. Jesus goes on now to call four men to build a community of his followers. It says, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, or whom we know as Peter, right? 
this book, which was written by Mark, but which Peter helped Mark write, as far as we know. Simon Peter wants himself to be seen as Simon at this point. Simon or Peter and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. The Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been there. Let me just describe it so you get a visual, kind of a sense of it. It was approximately seven times the size of Payette Lake, about one-third the size of Lake Tahoe if you've been there, 700 feet below sea level. It was a great place to catch fish. (laughs) They had a big fishing business. There were about 300 boats around the Sea of Galilee who were fishing boats on the lake at this time when Jesus walked there. It says that Simon or Peter and Andrew were casting their nets. I want to show you a picture of someone casting a net. This is how they were casting nets. And the way they did it, just again, to give you a sense of what it was like, they would take a net that was roughly 15 to 20 feet in diameter and had weights all around the outside. And they would look, and when they would see what looked like a school of fish, they would throw the net over it and it would sink, trapping the fish inside the net. So then Peter or Andrew or whoever the fisherman was had to dive into the water down to the bottom and carefully gather the weights and pull them in over the rocks to gather them so none of the fish could escape and grab them and then lift the whole net up and swim to the top of the water again and pull it out. This is the kind of fishing that Simon and Andrew were doing. It was hard work. But if they did well, they caught... St. Peter's fish, they call it. show you a picture of the St. Peter's fish. What we know is tilapia. It's the fish of major fish of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus comes to them and says, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. It raises the question for us, Why did they immediately follow Jesus? Had they had contact with him? Had they heard him teach? But it just says he just began his teaching. Why would they follow him in this way? Had they been and watched his baptism, perhaps, when John baptized him uh, along in the Jordan River? But if you read the way Mark has put it together, he said people from Judea and Jerusalem went to see Jesus and to see John but not people from Galilee. At least the way Mark has set it up here, it seems to imply that maybe they'd heard about Jesus, but they really didn't know him, and yet when he calls them, they respond immediately. I ask myself, why would they respond so immediately to his call? I think there may be some reasons for that, but There doesn't seem to be much evidence or preparation. And I think it raises the question for me personally, do I have a willing heart? Do I have the kind of heart that's willing to respond to whatever Jesus asks? Or do I have to calculate everything? Well, yeah, I don't know about that. And I don't really know about time. I have to get this done. And well, Lord, I don't know. And we, we tend to be so controlling of our lives and calculating that I'm afraid we miss Jesus' call often. I do know when I feel a sense that, that God lays someone on my heart and says, call this person or go visit this person. 
make contact with this person, that when I follow through on that, God honors that, that that that's from Him. He's calling me to follow Him. And when I don't do it, I miss out. I miss out on an opportunity to be part of building His kingdom. Do we have a willing heart to respond to whatever Jesus asks or do we have to calculate it all out and figure out the pros and cons and then we end up being frozen and not being led by the Spirit? There's something free in being led by the Spirit. And what does Jesus call them to? Well, notice what He says. He says, hey, sign up for my organization. (laughs) And guess what? You'll get my free newsletter and you'll get a free toga as well. No, he doesn't say that, does it? When he calls him, he just says, follow me. Follow me. What, what does he mean by follow me? Well, it helps understand some of the background here of how a rabbi functioned. In rabbis in the first century, if you wanted to follow a rabbi who was a teacher of the Torah, of the law, you went to rabbinic school, you learned the Torah. Then you would apply to work with a particular rabbi. And then he would put you through an exam, a very difficult exam. And if you pass the exam, then you might be invited to follow a rabbi for three years to be trained in the Torah. Well, Jesus is clearly a rabbi. He's presented himself as a rabbi. And he calls to these fishermen who have not been to rabbinic school, who don't know the Torah very well, who have probably been to synagogue, but that's it. And he calls them and says, you follow me. He invites them to be a follower of his as a rabbi. This is mind-blowing. It simply did not happen this way. And maybe that's partly why they responded, you want me, a fisherman? Wait, I got all this baggage, you know, I just, I don't know the Torah. You want me to become a follower of you? And Jesus says, follow me. That's what Jesus does with us. He meets us right where we are. Right with all our baggage, all our mess. We don't have it together. We haven't figured out everything. And he calls us and he says, just follow me. You don't have to have it together. Notice the way he puts it. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say follow me if you can do this and that and that and follow all the rules and if you commit to this and if you... No, he just says follow me and I'll make you. Brothers and sisters, that's the beauty of the Christian faith is it's simply following him. That's what he calls us to and as we do so, he makes us what he created us to be. Why did they respond to this call? Well, all I can say is they were moved by the Spirit and they were willing. They were willing to respond to this call of the Spirit. We too are called to follow Jesus. What does it look like? Well, like a student following a rabbi, you commit to say, okay, I'm I'm yours. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. I'm going to imitate you. I will learn from you. My life will focus on you. They walked with the rabbi. They lived with the rabbi. They were taught by the rabbi for the next three years. So when Jesus calls us to follow him, it means our lives suddenly become centered on him. 
We commit to be with Jesus, to stay with Him, to watch Him, to imitate Him, to listen and obey Him, to make Him the center of our lives. If you were invited as an athlete to be part of the Olympic team, you would move to the Olympic training center and you would listen to your coach and you would be committed to be there. You'd give up your old life and you'd be committed to follow Him. And that's like what Jesus calls us to. And so the challenge for us is this. Are we an acquaintance of Jesus? We, we met him by the lake. And I really like his stuff. I like, I like reading about him. And every once in a while, I'll touch base with him. Uh, you know, he's, he's a great guy. I like when he shows up at synagogue. It's pretty wonderful. Are you an acquaintance of Jesus? Or are you a follower of Jesus? I have to ask myself that. Am I an acquaintance of Jesus where he really hasn't changed my life a whole lot? Or am I a follower where suddenly my whole life is wrapped up in him and he directs it and I'm letting him make me a fisher of men? I like that, I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus doesn't define what that is. He doesn't say you have to even know what that means. Just follow me and I'll... I'll take care of your life. I'll remake you. (laughs) I'll take the raw material of your life. Notice these are fishermen. And he says, I'll make you fishers of men. He takes the raw material of who they are and turns them into kingdom material, (laughs) into a person who can impact others for eternity. Jesus says, that's my part of the deal. If you follow me, I'll take care of the rest. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to get it all together. I'll take care of that. And it's interesting. Jesus uses that raw material of the fishermen to make them fishers of men. He does that with each one of us. Uh, I've always been a people person. The negative side of that is I tend to be a people pleaser in my flesh, which means I get caught up in what people think about me. But Jesus, in His grace, is been remaking me, using that people-person part of me so I can learn to love people well and die to the negative parts of who I am so I can be useful for his kingdom. I've always loved study. I've loved history. God has remade that into my love for the Scriptures, to study the Scriptures and communicate the Scriptures. Whoever you are, God takes that and remakes it and uses it for his kingdom. He doesn't make you somebody totally different, but he gives you spiritual gifts and he uses who you are for the kingdom of God. So when we're called to follow Jesus, notice we're called to be part of this new community. A community of Jesus followers. The kingdom grows when we follow Jesus, when we learn to follow our rabbi and make him the center of our lives and we gather with other people who are Jesus' followers. It's in that relationship that the kingdom grows. Jesus makes that really clear in John 13. Remember where he says in verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you should love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. It's in our community of learning to love one another with all our differences and 
and all, but the one thing that ties us together is we're Jesus followers. We're learning to encourage one another in our walk with Him. Again, one of our core ministry principles, the third one in the list, is relational life. We're convinced that a deepening personal relationship with God is essential to being a disciple. Loving others through a life-on-life ministry of personal relationships is a primary way in which we help others grow deeper in relationship with God. So we emphasize small group participation as an important way to mature that relationship. And then Jesus goes on to call James and John. Going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he calls them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They too respond. They were doing a different kind of fishing. I want to show you how they were fishing in the boat. This is a picture on the Sea of Galilee of some fishermen. And you see the man standing in the middle pulling up the net. They would trail this net behind the boat and then they would go in a big circle and gather it and they would gather the fish inside and then pull it on board. But the fish would often tear the net and so there had to be a lot of mending that happened just to make it useful, to make it work. And they immediately, like Simon and Andrew, respond to become disciples. makes me wonder what their father Zebedee was thinking as he watched their sons leave the business, the family business that had probably been there for centuries or at least many, many years, and follow this rabbi that he didn't really know. I don't want to stretch this too far, but it's, it's interesting to me that Peter and Andrew were fishing, and Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men. What were James and John doing? They were, they were fishermen too, but they were mending the nets. I just notice in Scripture that one, here two are called to be fishers of men, and sometimes I wonder if some of us aren't called to be fishers of men and some of us called to be menders of men. In fact, that exact same word for mending the nets is the exact word from Ephesians chapter 4, where it says that God gave some as pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's exactly the same word, literally, to mend the saints for the work of ministry. Some of you are called to be fishermen, fishers of men. Some of us are called to be menders of men, (laughs) equippers of men. Same word. We're called to follow Jesus, to be followers of his. He calls us to follow him. I I want to show a video now, just short video, of some men in our body uh, who got together and were following Jesus and on their own said, you know what, I believe God is calling us to start a ministry to, to the rescue mission, to reach out and love them. And God has blessed this ministry. And I want you to be encouraged by this as you see that a few men simply listening to Jesus, following Jesus, have created a ministry that's having a huge impact today. It happens the second Sunday of every month. It's going to happen tonight at 6 o'clock. 
the rescue mission minister. I'm going to show this video now just so you get a taste of that. Now, I show you that just to give you a sense of what happens when you listen to the voice of the Lord and say, Lord, uh, I'm willing to follow. How the Lord can use his word to impact lives. How the Lord can use you perhaps to either start a ministry or simply reach out to somebody who's hurting, to share the truth. Uh, Those men who go regularly, I don't go regularly, but those men who go regularly have a huge impact. But even the night I was there, just a chance to talk with a man who is recently out of jail, three days out of jail, trying to get his life together, and I had a chance to talk with him and pray with him. Or another man who stood in the back and said, I can't be part of this chapel because I've done too many bad things. And to be able to share the gospel with him and encourage him that Jesus died for him too and that his sins are completely covered just as much as mine. To be able to be part of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, is why we're here. And how does the kingdom get built? How do you start a revolution? How do you impact lives for eternity? You know what? It doesn't take a big organization. It doesn't take powerful personalities. It doesn't take a lot of high-tech stuff. In fact, where the kingdom gets built, even today in our sophisticated age, is simply truth and love. Proclaiming the truth of God's Word the truth of the gospel, sharing it with people. So the power is released in lives and then building a community where we are learning together to follow Jesus and to love each other. Those are the powerful tools that Jesus uses to change the world forever. (laughs) And they are the exact tools that you and I have. We have the truth. And we have the Holy Spirit in us to help us learn to love one another as we each follow him. Jesus says to you and to me, follow me, follow me, and I'll make you what you were always created to be. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're called each of us here to follow you. And I pray that we would learn more what that means and that we would be people who, like Simon and Andrew, like James and John, are willing to, to give up what's behind and to look at you and follow you and live with you as the center of our lives. May we be disciples that are useful to you to build the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.